0: The most important relationship that you and I have is our relationship with God and and two of the most important things within that relationship that we have with God is first you know how do we effectively worship the God that we serve and secondly how do we come to know the will of God for our life. And those are going to be the things that we're going to be looking at here as we now transition into Romans chapter 12. We're going to be seeing, you know, really one of the most effective uh, and meaningful ways to worship God and what you and I can do to discover the will of God for our lives. And as we come to Romans chapter 12, we see a significant shift and change in this letter because the first 11 chapters that we've looked at have really been doctrine. They've been focusing on things that we need to know. And he's been sharing lots of important things that we need to know about ourselves and and the fact that we're sinners, about God and His salvation for us and and the sanctification in our lives. And so there's been plenty to know that's been doctrinal. But now this shift is going to go from Doctrine and knowledge to practical application, to how we should live, to what we should do. And we see this through a majority of Paul's letters where he starts with the first several chapters dealing with what we should do or no, sorry, doctrine, and then it moves on to well, now how should we live? What should we do? And this is a great pattern because you know, first, before you seek to do something for God, you need to know what God has done for you. Uh, and that's always the way it should start of really grasping who God is and, and what he's done for you before you seek to try to do something for him. And so we've got 11 chapters of amazing things that God has done for us. And now we're going to transition into okay, great. How do we apply this? What now do we do for the Lord? How do we live for him? And as we go through this final section here that I've titled Service, mainly because they're all S's, as you can see, just for your remembrance, where we're going to be looking at, you know, how do we now practically live? But something I love in this final section that Paul focuses on, he really just deals with, relationships. Because that's really the the main thing. We have so many different relationships in life that we're asking the question, how should I practically live in this particular relationship? And Paul is going to be covering 10 different relationships that you and I have and how we should practically live in them. In verses 1 and 2, we're going to see the relationship to God, and then our relationship to the gift of the Spirit, to other believers, to unbelievers, to the government, to our neighbors, to weak believers, uh, relationship of Jews to Gentiles, relationship of Paul to the Gentiles, and then finally, relationship of Christians to one another, actually demonstrated. So as you can see, Paul's covering the majority of the relationships that you and I have in our life, and he's not going to give us some exhaustive list with each one of all the things that we should do within that relationship, but he is going to throw out several challenges of, you know, in this relationship, you and I should do this thing and this thing, and that would really enhance the relationship that we have. And this morning, we're going to start here in the most important relationship of all, the relationship that we have with God. And there are two things that Paul's going to challenge us with. You know, there's lots of things in our relationship with God, but he says, you know what? I want you to know how to worship God effectively, and I want you to know how to discover the will of God for your life. Because if you can do those two things, your relationship with God is going to deepen. It's going to be blessed. And so that's what we're going to focus on this morning. And we're only going to be covering two verses this morning, but these verses, really, this whole latter section is just packed full of deep, important, practical things. And so I want us to dig into this this morning and see what we can learn from these very important verses. So let's start by reading them. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says this. As Paul transitions now into what we should do, he starts by saying, I beseech you. And this is a a very strong word in the Greek, uh, more literally translated, I beg of you. And you don't beg of people unless there's something real important. So Paul is saying, hey, I beg of you to do what I'm about to challenge you to do because it's so vital for your Christian life. It's so vital for you to put these things into practice. And so I desperately want to see you guys Take this on board and actually do it. But you know what? With anything that we're challenged to do, you know, we need motivation. What is the motivation for us? What is it that should really drive us to do the things that we're going to see not only in these two verses, but all the way through the rest of this uh, letter? You know, what should really motivate us in that? I don't know about you, but I find personally that, you know, unless I have a motivation, I'm much less likely to actually seek to do something, especially something difficult or something that's going to require quite a sacrifice from me. And we're going to see that what Paul is going to challenge us to do is difficult. It is a sacrifice. And so we need a motivation. Well, what's going to drive us to that as we get up each morning? What is it that's going to be there that says, you know what? This is the reason why today I'm going to seek to put this into practice in my life. And so Paul gives us one of the best motivations that you and I can have. He tells us we should do this because of the mercies of God that have been given to us. You know, all the last 11 chapters that we've looked up leading to now just are full of the mercies of God, full of the things that God has done for you and I that should ultimately motivate us to now live for God. You know, let me remind you of some of those things that God has given us justification from the guilt and penalty of sin He has made us dead to sin and alive in Christ. He has adopted us as His children. He has poured His grace upon us. He has given us His Holy Spirit to dwell within us and empower us. And the reason all these wonderful things are available to us is because of the most significant mercy that God has given us of all, and that is the fact that He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. What Jesus did for us should be plenty of reason and motivation for us to respond to what Paul is challenging us to do. As you look at what Jesus did, as you look at the mercy that we've been given, that should be what drives us, that should be what motivates us, that should be like, hey, because you've done this for me, it's just natural for me now to respond by saying, Lord, I want to live for you. I want to do these things for you. The more you and I understand what God has done for us, I think the more naturally we'll start to live for Him. The greater our comprehension of God's mercy, the greater our commitment to live for Him. I think this is what Isaac Watt beautifully expresses in his hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. There's a line in there that says, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. He realizes God's love is so amazing. God's love is so divine. What He has done for me is just so wonderful. It demands something of me. It demands my soul. It demands my life. It demands my all. I should give everything to Him because He gave everything for me. David Livingston, who was a missionary to Africa, wrote something that reveals he understood how the mercies of God should motivate us to live for God. He said this, People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice, which is simply paying back a small part of the great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Rather, it is a privilege. You know, when you understand what God has done for you, it drastically changes the way that you view how you live for Him. So often it's this hard, horrible, you know, sacrifice that we're reluctant to do instead of a wonderful privilege of I get to give to God. I have a privilege to serve God because look at all that He has done for me. So what God has done should motivate us but you know what the mercies of God don't just motivate you and I it also enables us yeah this is something that we we realize as we go through this we realize hey this is too hard what I'm being commanded by in and of my own strength I can't accomplish and so we need to realize it's through the mercy of God through his grace through the power of his spirit that he also enables us to accomplish the things that he commands us to do As I've said many times before, God never commands us to do something that he won't give us the power to accomplish. He doesn't just sit there on his throne and say, here, do this. I know you'll never be able to, and I'm just going to laugh at your failure. No, he says, I will empower you. You do this. I command it of you, and I will give you all you need to fulfill it, to accomplish it in your life. And so what is it that God is asking us to do? What is it that he will ultimately empower us to accomplish? Well, Paul shares with us two very important things here in our relationship with God. First, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So this is dealing with how, excuse me how we should worship God. And second, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And this is dealing with how we discover God's will for our life. So the first challenge in our relationship with God, that we present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, this Greek Word translated reasonable and service, uh, it means to perform the spiritual service of worship to God. That's why if you have the ESV translation or the New American Standard translation, it's going to translate it spiritual worship, which is a more accurate translation to what's being said here because this is what is being referred to. This is your spiritual act of worship to God. And so what God, what? Paul is saying here is that when we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, that's an act of worship. And this is something that I, I think is so important for us to understand when it comes to worship, because if you would survey the majority of Christians, what is worship? The most common answer is singing songs to God. And we miss really the, the depth of worship because worship isn't just singing songs to God. Worship is really a response To who God is and to what He's done for us. And one way that we respond to the greatness of God and all that He's done for us is we do what we did just a few minutes ago. We sing songs that declare how amazing He is. We sing songs of praise, you know, because we, we love what He's done. And that's just one expression of worship, one response to who God is. But really, it's not the best response. It's not the deepest response. It's not the most important response. The best, deepest, and most important response is what we see right here. It's not singing songs. It's giving God your life. And I want to say this. You know what? If we don't give God our life and we sing these songs, it's hypocritical. Oh, Lord, you're so wonderful. You're so great. You know, oh, thank you so much. But I'm not going to live for you. I'm not going to give my life to you. I'm not going to serve you. But I am appreciative of what you've done for me. When we sing after we've given him our lives, those words are so much more powerful. They're so much more meaningful because they're connected to a person who actually is seeking to live for God, not just someone who's grateful for what God has done for them. So let's look at what Paul says here about one of the most significant ways to demonstrate worship to God so we can understand it better and hopefully put it into practice more effectively ourselves. The Greek word here translated present. Present your body. It means to yield, surrender up, to place at the disposal of another. So the thing that Paul tells us we need to present is, hey, present your body. Place your body at the disposal of God. Give Him your body. And this term body is speaking of our entire being. All that we are. Spirit, soul, body, emotions, physical, spiritual, everything. Give it all to Him. It's His. Sacrifice it to Him. Now the challenge for us is to hold nothing back. And I think this is a difficulty for us. It's like, all right, Lord, you can have this piece of me and you can have that part, but I'm holding on to this and I'm keeping that. And and the challenge here is no, give your entire body to the Lord, your entire life to God. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, was once asked the secret of his success, and this was his reply. I'll tell you the secret. God had all of me there was to have. From the day I got the poor on on my heart and a vision for what Christ could do, I made up my mind that God would have all there was of William Booth. God had all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. William Booth understood something very important. In my service to God, he wants me to present my entire body. He wants all of me, not just part of me. He wants every bit of it. And notice what God's able to do. If you know anything about how God's moved through the Salvation Army and how he moved through William Booth, it was amazing. And you see this throughout church history. Those people who are willing to say, Lord, not here's part of me, but here is all of me. It enables God to do so much more through us when we give everything to Him for His service. Presenting our bodies to God is a commitment. It's a commitment we make to Him. Kind of like the commitment that a bride and groom make to one another on their wedding day. You know, when a bride and groom come to their vows, the the bride doesn't say, hey, hey, I I give you my cooking ability. The, The groom doesn't say, I give you my bank account. No, they say, I give you something far deeper, far greater, I give you myself. For death do us part. For the rest of our lives, here is me. I give you me more than what I can do. I give you myself. And this is what God is asking of us. He wants us to give us, give him ourselves, all that we are, our entire body. But notice how Paul tells us we should do that. Verse 1, he says, we need to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. You know, throughout the Old Testament, sacrifices were made for mainly two reasons. The one that we often focus on is the atonement of sin. A very important part of the sacrificial system, sacrificing animals to atone for sin. But there are also many sacrifices that were given for worship. And so those are the two main things that we see in the sacrificial system. Sacrifices to atone for sin and sacrifices that worship God. Well, Jesus' death on the cross... It atoned for our sin once and for all. You and I, we don't need to sacrifice anymore. The sacrifice of Jesus was enough for our past, present, and future sins. It is dealt with. It is over with. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, your sins are forgiven. You don't have to think, well, I need to start sacrificing animals. I need to do some kind of sacrifice to atone for my sin. No, they're atoned for. That only leaves one sacrifice left for you and I. And that's the sacrifice of worship. And that's what Paul's bringing up here. Here's a sacrifice of worship to God that you and I give. And it's the greatest sacrifice of worship we can give because it's a living sacrifice. It's saying, here, God, this is my life. I'm going to live for you. Now, I think a lot of Christians are willing to die for Christ. I think if they were put into a situation, maybe they went to, you know, a Middle Eastern country where, you know, someone grabbed them and said, "You know what? Unless you denounce Christ, we're going to kill you." I think many Christians would say, "You know what? I'm willing to die for Jesus." But you know what? Those same people I ask the question, "Are you willing to live for him?" Because in that one moment where you say, yeah, I'm willing to give up my life, that's easier than every day saying, I'm going to lay down my life for Christ. I'm going to live for Him in all that I do. That's a much more difficult challenge, and that is what we're told to do. Be a living sacrifice. Daily put your life on the altar and say, you know what, Lord, I'm living for You. It's not about me anymore. It's all about You. Your will be done, not my own. That's the challenge that Paul is giving to us. That is... One of the greatest demonstrations of worship that we can give to the Lord. Francis Havglar wrote the hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. And I think the words of this hymn give a a wonderful description of just what it looks like to be a living sacrifice. It says this, take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always, only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite Would I withhold? Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and take it and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord. I pour at thee thy feet. It's treasure store. Take myself. I will be ever only all for thee. The greatest way that you can worship God is to give Him your life on a daily basis. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, I can't do that. I can't give God all of me. I can't lay myself on the altar daily. I can't be a living sacrifice. I want you to remember, God will never ask you to do something He won't give you the power to accomplish. He'll enable you through the power of His Spirit. If you're willing to say, Lord, I am willing. I'll lay myself down and I trust in You to enable me to do it. I trust in You to give me the power. I trust in You to help me with it because I know in and of myself, I don't even desire it and I definitely can't accomplish it. But through You, it's possible. And so as you look at this and think, no way, that's not possible. Yes, it is. God will enable you to do it. But He says, you need to make the choice. Daily choose to sacrifice yourself for me. Daily choose to give me your life so that I could do wonderful things through it. Now with that, the reality is there are going to be days, I know in my own life, I'm sure you've seen in your own, that you fail in that. There are going to be days where maybe you even wake up thinking, yes, Lord, this day is for you and I'm going to live for you. And then in the middle of the day, you realize, no, I'm not living for him at all. I'm living for myself. And there are going to be times where we sin and we fail and we totally you know blow it. But the good news is, if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The good news is, His mercies are new every morning. And guess what? Tomorrow's a new day. The mercies are new. You can start over new. And even though you failed today, God will forgive and God will help you. And so we need to remember, even when we fail, don't give up. Remember, the Lord is there. His Spirit is there. He wants to help us accomplish this. So this choice to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, it's not just a a one-time offer. All right, Lord, here's my body, and then it's done. This is a continual thing. This is a daily thing. This is something that each day we're going to struggle with. Each day we're going to have to really make a choice to say, my life is yours. And when we do that, notice how God responds to that kind of worship. We're told that it's holy and acceptable to God. The word holy is to be set apart. This Greek word translated acceptable means well-pleasing because it's well-pleasing, it's accepted. You know, when it comes to worshiping God, one of the questions we should be asking ourselves is, what is it that's well-pleasing to him? What is it that he accepts? You know, in the church world today, there's a lot of things out there that people are titling and labeling worship that I think are unbiblical, that I think are, are clearly not something that God accepts and are not well-pleasing to Him. And so it shouldn't just be anything that I call worship is worship. No, I shouldn't be the standard of what is acceptable and well-pleasing. God's Word should be. And so I should look to His Word and say, what does He say is a well-pleasing act of worship? What does He say is an acceptable act of worship? Well, here's one thing that you can be sure is... Presenting your body as a living sacrifice. You want to do something that you know God's going to say, that pleases me. That act of worship is something that blesses me. I accept that. Well, here is what we should do. Present our body a living sacrifice to the Lord. If you want to please Him, here's a clear way in which you can do it. So the first challenge in our relationship to God has to do with how we worship God. One of the best ways that we do that is to present our bodies a living sacrifice to the Lord. It's our spiritual act of worship. Well, the second challenge in our relationship with God, Paul tells us, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know, one of the most important things in our relationship with God is to know, what is God's will for my life? You know, as a pastor, that's one of the most common questions that I get from people. How can I know the will of God for my life? And it's a great question. It's a great desire because as Christians, we should want that, right? We should want to know, what does God want from me? How does he want me to live? What is his will for my life? Well, Paul shares with us how we discover that. You want to know how can you know the will of God for your life? Paul's going to share with us some things that we need to do in order to discover that. He's going to start with something we shouldn't do, something that hinders our ability to discover the will of God for our life, and then something that we should do. And they kind of go hand in hand. And if we do that, it enables us to effectively know God's will for our life. So let's start with what we shouldn't do. Let's start with the hindrance to the will of God in our life. We're told, do not be conformed to this world. You know, the Greek word translated conformed means to shape something by using a mold. You know, back in this time there were metal workers and what they would do is they would get a mold that had a certain shape in it and they would take metal and they would melt it down and they would pour it into the mold and as the metal cooled and hardened it would now take the shape of the mold that it was poured into it now conformed into a new shape. So you could have taken an old sword and and melted it down and you put it into this mold. And now it's a whole different shape. It's been changed. It's been conformed. And so what Paul is saying is don't let the world squeeze you into its mold so that you become like it, so that you take its shape. You know, the world wants to shape the way we think. It wants to shape the way that we act. And it's constantly bombarding us with its philosophies, with its ungodly practices, with all sorts of things to try to influence how we think and how we act to become more like it. So we're shaped like it. So we live like it. Now, the reality is everyone is shaped by something. The way that a person thinks, the philosophies that they have, the worldview, their view of the world, it's going to be shaped by something. The question for us as believers is, what is shaping our life? What is shaping the way we think? What is shaping our view of the world? It should be God's Word. That should be the main thing that shapes us. The Word of God and the Spirit of God are the two most effective things to shape us to become more like Jesus. The problem that many people have in the world that are Christians is they're allowing the world to shape the way they think, the world to shape the way they act, instead of the Word of God to shape those things. And it brings conformity to the world. When the world is a thing that you're listening to, the world is a thing that you're following, you're going to become like it instead of becoming like Jesus. Each time we allow the world to shape and influence our lives, it's just one step closer to full conformity to the world. As Christians, we live in the world, but we need to be careful that the world doesn't live in us. We should be like a submarine. A submarine is designed to be in the water, to be fully immersed in the water. But if water gets in the submarine, the alarm goes off. There's problems. That's not what it's designed to be like. So as Christians, we should be in the world. A lot of Christians are like, hey, let's just go run off to a a space where there's no one and just hide there. No, that's not what God wants from us. We're lights to the world. We're the ambassadors of Christ. We're meant to be in the world. We just got to be careful the world's not in us. That's the problem that we have. Because we dwell here, and because all of the influences of the world are around us, we struggle so often of allowing the world in our life to change us to become more like it. And that's the thing that Paul says, hey, you want to know God's will? Be very careful with conformity to the world. Make sure you have boundaries in your life so you're not allowing the philosophies and the thinking and the actions of the world to impact and change your life. Well, Paul says, "You know what? The best way to do that is what he says next: by being transformed by the renewing of your mind." This word "transforms" a, a very interesting word. The Greek word that we have here that's translated "transform" is "metamorphu." It's where we get our English word "metamorphosis." It, it means uh, to change into another form, to transform, to trans—excuse me—to transfigure. It describes a change on the outside that comes from. The inside. You know, we use this word to describe the metamorphosis of a caterpillar that ultimately changes into a butterfly. Something from the inside ultimately displays itself outwardly. Now, this Greek word that Paul uses here, it's only used four times in the New Testament. It's used here. It's used two times in the Gospel, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark, to speak of Jesus' transfiguration. Remember, he's on the mountain. Peter, James, and John are up there with him and they see he's glowing. His clothes are white like nothing you've ever seen before. The glory inside of him starts to shine outwardly and they get a, a glimpse of that. But there's one other place in the New Testament that this word is used that I think helps bring out what Paul is kind of alluding to here. Second Corinthians 3.18. We see this word used and it says this, but we all with unveiled face, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Notice this, we're being transformed in the same image of Jesus. This is the, the, the desire that Paul has. You know what? We need to be transformed. Not conformed to be like the world, but be transformed to be like Jesus. That our lives start to look more and more like Jesus, how we speak, how we think, how we live, that is the goal that God has for our life. But notice how it happens. Oh, I want to be transformed. Well, good. It happens by the renewing of your mind. You see, the battleground between conforming to the world and being transformed was within our minds. We need to have our minds renewed. The Greek word here translated renewed means a complete change for the better. To cause something to go to become better or superior to what it used to be. So you know, as Christians, we have minds that have been you know polluted with a lot of junk and sin before we came to Christ. And God doesn't rip out our brain and and give us a new brain. He says, No, I'm going to renew what you have. I'm going to change it. I'm going to take all that junk and filter it out, and I'm going to give you uh, something renewed and better. Now, the main thing that renews our mind is the Word of God. You want a renewal in your mind, then God's word is an essential thing that you need to continue to use. Vance Habner understood this truth about the power of God's word to renew our minds. And he wrote this. The storehouse of God's word was never meant for mere scrutiny, not even primarily for study, but for sustenance. It is not simply a collection of fine proverbs and noble teachings for men to admire and quote as they might Shakespeare. It is ration for the soul, resources of and for the spirit, treasure for the inner man. Its goods exhibited upon every page are ours and we have no business merely moving respectfully amongst them and coming away none the richer. The purpose of Bible study is ultimately to be transformed. That's why you should study the Word of God. It's not just for information. It's for transformation. If all you do is study the Bible for information, you've missed the point. God doesn't just want you to know a bunch of stuff. He wants your life to be changed by those things. He wants you to put that into practice. He wants you to actually be more like Jesus. You know, there are a lot of books out there that can inform you. But there's only one book that can transform you to become more like Jesus Christ, and that is God's Word. And that's why it is so important for us to use it to renew our mind each and every day. You know, if you're anything like me, you have allowed a lot of junk in your mind. And I'm not just talking about before Christ days. I I wish that was the only time I allowed junk into my mind. But even as we're believers, we oftentimes don't put up proper boundaries and filters, and we still allow a lot of things into our mind that we need to have filtered out. We need God to renew. We need God to work through. And so every day, we need to be filling our minds with the things of God so it can help that renewal process to happen. We need to be dwelling upon and med- meditating upon godly things. Philippians 4.8 tells us this. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. You know, I want to ask you a question. What is it that you, in a typical day, spend your time meditating on? Spend your time dwelling on? Spend your time really thinking about? Because what you dwell upon in your mind impacts your attitude, impacts your action, impacts your life in a very significant way. And so often, uh, I talk with believers who are super just struggling and they're depressed and all this stuff, and you find that the things that they're meditating on have nothing to do with this list. It's all things that are worldly and things that are just not healthy for them to be focusing on and dwelling upon all day long. And if we will dwell upon this list, if we'll meditate on these things, if the word of God is the thing that we really focus on. Wow, will that have a huge impact on our life and our actions and our attitudes? So an essential thing in our relationship with God is what we allow to enter our mind, what we focus our minds Oh, and this is a big battleground, because the reality is before you act, you think. Our thoughts are what ultimately produce our actions, and so if we can win the battle in the mind, we'll also win the battle in actions. If we lose the battle in our mind, we're going to lose the battle in our actions. And so we need to realize this is really where it starts and where it's most vital. And so we have to take this very seriously. If we're not careful what we allow into our minds, we're going to have problems. we either going to be a conformer to the world, or we're going to be a transformer and become more like Jesus. You know, many Christians today are like thermometers. They adjust to the temperature of the world and become like the world. But what we should be is a thermostat. You see, thermostats don't adjust to the temperature, they control the temperature. We shouldn't adjust to the temperature of the world and become like it. We should be the ones saying, hey, no, no, I'm going to be in control here. I'm going to make sure I control what comes into my mind. I'm going to make sure the word of God comes into my mind so that I'm not conformed to the world, but instead transformed to become like Jesus Christ. Now, the problem with many Christians is they live based on feelings. Or they live based on, you know, only being concerned about doing and they ignore this vital truth that Paul is telling us here of the renewing of your mind. You know, life based on feelings says, you know, how do I feel today? How do I feel about my job? How do I feel about my spouse? How do I feel about worship? How do I feel about the list goes on and on and on? The life driven by feelings will never know the transforming power of God because it ignores this important thing, the renewing of your mind. If you ignore the renewing of your mind, you're gonna have really big problems. The life based on doing says, don't give me your theology. Just tell me what to do. Just give me some points about how I do this and how I do that. I don't need anything else. The life of doing will never know the transforming power of God either because it ignores the renewing of the mind. Now, I'm not saying that feelings are bad or, or doing is bad. God is a God of deep, passionate feelings. He commands us to be doers. But feelings and doing are, are insufficient foundations for the Christian life. The first question that we ask cannot be, how do I feel? It can't be, what must I do? The first question should always be, what is true? What does God's word say? Because if I'm based things on my feelings instead of the word of God, there's always going to be problems. And if I don't know the word of God, I'll never know what to do anyway. Uh, so I can't actually do stuff that God's word says until I first take the time to ask the question: what does God's word say? And there's many times that I feel contrary to the word. And I need to base my decisions and my life on what God's Word says, not how I feel in the present circumstances and situations. And so this is why the renewing of our mind has to be the foundation by which we spend and live our time with the Lord. Now, when you and I are not conformed to this world, but instead are transformed by the renew of the mind, enables us to do something very important. Notice what we're told, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The Greek word here translated prove means to test and examine, to see whether a thing is genuine or not when we don't allow ourselves to be conformed to the world, when the world is not shaping the way that we think and the way in which we live, but instead we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind through the Word of God to become more like Christ, we're now at a place where the will of God becomes Apparent to us, the will of God is now something that we can see clearly and understand because we do not have the distraction of the word, or sorry, the world, but we have the the revelation of the word in front of us. There are two reasons why many Christians don't know God's will for their life. First is because we're conforming to the world. We're allowing the world to shape the way we think and the way we live. We're following the world's will for our life. And when we do that, we're ultimately blind to the will of God. If you're constantly focused on what does the world think, what should we do according to what the world says, you're always going to be hindered and blinded to the word of God and God's will for you. The second reason we as Christians don't know the will of God is because we're not studying God's word. God's not trying to hide his will from us. You well, know, when sometimes when, when Christians will come and, and ask me things, it's like this, like, you know, God's playing hide and seek with his will. And, you know, how is it that I find it? Well, it's not hard. It's not complicated. He's actually said, here, I've written it all down. Every relationship that you can possibly think of in my word, I've told you how I want you to live, what I want you to do. You know, there's a general will of God for every single believer that we so often just ignore and say, well, I just want some specific thing. Does God want me to do this, this, and this over here? It's like, well, wait a second. Why don't you just first start with all the things that God tells you you should be doing, how you should be living, and you know what? If you do that, all this other stuff is going to be uh, very clear to you. You're going to know where God is directing you. So he's not trying to hide his will from us. Our problem is we need to stop listening to the world And following what the world says and start studying our Bibles and doing what the Word of God says. It's not super complicated. I mean, read your Bible and pray every single day. If you'll do that, then the will of God is going to be something that is real to you. That's all you got to do. Read your Word and pray. Ask God for wisdom. Lord, as I seek this, show me what it is you want me to do in my life. And God will make that clear. Now, one of the problems we face as Christians is we don't really always want the will of God. We can say, well, yeah, that's fine. You can tell me all the ways to discover it. The problem is I don't want to discover it. I don't want to know it. And there's two main reasons for that. First, because we're content with following the world's will for our life. We've bought into a lie that Satan has done a great job in deceiving Christians with, and that is what the world offers is better than what God offers. And we bought into that lie. I don't want God's will. I'm content and quite happy with what the world offers me because I believe what they say. This is more satisfying. This is more fulfilling. This is better for my life. And I bought into that lie. And so I'm not even looking for God's will because I'm fine with the will that I'm following, which is the world's will, which is ultimately Satan's will for your life. The second reason we don't always want God's will for our life is because we don't understand what Paul shares with us about God's will. Notice that Paul uses three words to describe the will of God here. He describes it as good, acceptable, and perfect. Is that what you think of when you think of the, word of the will of God, that it is something that's good, something that's acceptable, and something that is perfect for you? You know, I've talked with too many people and in my own life I know there have been times when I did not believe this. Oh, you know, if I give my life to God... He's going to do something bad for me. Oh, you know, if I say, Lord, I'm just going to trust you with my spouse. He's going to give me some, you know, really ugly person that I just have no th- nothing in common with. And, you know, he's going to force me to, to move somewhere I don't want to go. And he's going to give me some ministry that I just despise. I mean, if I give my life to the Lord, it's not going to be good. His will's going to be bad for me. No, it's not. God's will is good. It's acceptable. It's perfect. I think the perfect side is maybe our biggest struggle. I think oftentimes, well, you, your will is somewhat, you know, it's a little bit imperfect. Let's let me help it make it perfect, God. You know, I know you're kind of leading me here, but but really that's not what's best for me. That's not what's perfect for my life. I'm gonna add this and that, and then it's gonna be perfect. And we struggle with that. We struggle with believing, hey, what God has is truly perfect, which means I don't add anything to it. I just trust what He has for me and I follow it completely. That's not always something that we do and it keeps us from being willing to follow His will, from being willing to even want His will. And we need to recognize, no, His will is always good. It's always acceptable. It's always perfect. And I need to hold on to that and actually. Follow it. So within these first two verses, Paul shares with us some great challenges concerning our relationship with Him. First, one of the best ways that you and I should worship God is by presenting our body to Him as a living sacrifice because that is something that is holy. That is something that is well-pleasing to God. He says, do it. I love it. That's the way I want you to worship me. Second, the way that we can discover the will of God for our life is by not conforming to this world, not allowing this world to shape how we think and how we live, but instead we should be transformed to become more like Jesus through the renewing of our mind that happens as we study the Word of God. And when we do that, we're going to be able to discover God's will, that it's good, that it's acceptable, that it's perfect, and then the most important step, do it. If you just know it, which I'm sure a lot of you who have sat and heard the word taught and studied it yourself, oh yeah, I know how I'm supposed to live in my marriage, or I know how I'm supposed to treat my enemy, or I know how I'm supposed to do in this and this. Yeah, I know the verses that God says, do this. Well, great. But are you doing it? No? Well, then you missed the point. He wants us to put it into practice. He wants us to actually live it. So in our relationship with God, he wants worship to him with our complete lives, And he wants us to discover his will and actually live it out. And we need to remember, this isn't something that we do in our own strength. This isn't something that we try to seek to accomplish in our own power. Because when you do, as we've looked at already in the book of Romans in chapter 7, as Paul said, yeah, I tried so hard in my own strength to live for God. And it doesn't work because in ourselves, we don't have the ability. But you know what? God has given us his spirit if we have accepted his son. And we have the power because of it to follow what he tells us to do. So you and I can complete this challenge that we've been given. We can accomplish this if we'll just trust and rely upon the power of God to help us do it. You know, as I was studying through this, and oftentimes when you study something that's so challenging, there is conviction because you realize, man, Am I really giving my complete life to the Lord? Am I really following His will completely in my life? And you know, for myself, I had to just come and say, "Lord, I need to repent. I can see areas where I need to, you know, really give up all to You." And I just want to close this morning, just a time of just being quiet between you and God. And if that's you, and you're saying, "You know what? I listened to this, and I realize." My worship is definitely not a worship of completely giving my life to the Lord. And I know a lot of God's will that I'm not actually putting into practice. I don't want you just to leave content with that. I want you to say, Lord, I want to change. I repent for not doing this, but I also want to depend on your spirit to help me to be someone who can do this. And so, you know, this is just between you and God. I just want to give a little time to be quiet and just give you an opportunity to pray and seek him. And if that's you, just to get right, to repent and ask for his help so that we might actually put this into practice. And so let's just close with just a time to come before the Lord ourselves.